0: Thank you very much for joining us here on AU Manufacturing Conversations. Good to have you on the program. Thanks for having me. A pleasure. First question, as always, is how did you get here and what do you make?
1: How did I get here? I suppose I'm I'm an engineer that is working on building quantum computers in silicon. How did I get here is actually a bit of a long story. How much time
0: do we have? All the time you need. I actually came, came through engineering,
1: through electrical engineering, through a bachelor's and a PhD, and then found myself working with a a team doing quantum computing and really loved that and, and got really into it. So now I found myself working with a new startup, Dirac, who's working on building on quantum computers in Silicon in Sydney.
0: That's it in a nutshell, but your humble sort of recap of your career didn't take in a lot of fairly interesting details. We don't need all of them, but I stalked you on LinkedIn and I noticed you started with mining engineering. You've got some, like you said, electronics engineering in there, you worked, not worked, so you, you've uh, presumably worked as a musician, but you studied uh, music at the Conservatorium of Music in Sydney pretty impressive and pretty unrelated stuff. Tell me about, you know, what, what happened and why the, the pivot's in career. Are you just looking for something that kept you stimulated perhaps?
1: So way back when I was finishing high school, I was, I was really keen on getting into engineering. I found myself in mining engineering. That didn't quite tickle the itch for me, and I was really into music. So I actually found when I dived into university straight out of high school, I was actually spending way more time on music than I was <laughs> on my degree. And I was I was thinking seriously about it. Do I want to have a go at that? And I thought, all right, I'll audition for the conservatorium. And if I get in, all right, that'll mean that maybe I'm okay at this, and I'll I'll have a crack at it. And then I got in. I went through a full
0: bachelor's of performance degree there, doing jazz jazz performance. Mm-hmm.
1: And yeah, had a, had a lot of fun doing that. Basically, lived and, and worked as a professional musician and music teacher for a number of years. And I still play. It's more of a hobby now, I suppose, but it's uh, still a big, big part of my life. It's a bit of a tough profession, music, which wouldn't, maybe wouldn't be surprising. It's a lot of hustle and a lot of travel and lots
0: of varied work. The economics um, of it aren't great. Um a hack musician, certainly not of the calibre of a conservatorium graduate, but I've dabbled a bit and, you know, playing a gig doesn't really... result in very much money for what ends up being a hell of a lot of effort yeah
1: and a lot of the time the pathway
0: is through music teaching yep it's really where your stability comes from which
1: i enjoy a lot but um i guess i was lucky in the sense that i also have a love for engineering and i when I, worked, I guess when I was at the tail end of working as a, as a musician, I, I got back into a job working as a technician in electronics, which I'd done on and off, and that got me back interested in engineering again, and I went from that into a bachelor's of electronics.
0: How would you gravitate towards the quantum side of electronics? Because presumably doesn't happen immediately. You've probably tried a few things. There's a lot of different kinds of electronics engineering. Tell me about that.
1: Yeah, I was really I was really interested in semiconductors and RF electronics and computing. Then I took a honors thesis, honors project with the team at UNSW, the team of Andrew Durak mm-hmm. there. They were obviously working on, on quantum computing and I took a project there and really loved the team and the technology. While I was doing that I found sort of challenges in that technology that I hadn't seen before. It was breaking a lot of new ground working on problems to solve that I, you know, I couldn't look up the the solution in a textbook. I had to actually just think about how to do it. And that was a lot of fun, really enticing, and that, that got me into it.
0: Before we talk a little bit about some of the many challenges and what you've come up with recently, I'd like to know, just for clarity's sake, for people who perhaps don't have the benefit of a background as involved with tricky subjects as yours, could you just tell me a couple things about just definitions of what a quantum dot is, what an electron spin is, and how you're using them to make qubits? I know it's probably very basic stuff to you, but probably unfamiliar to a lot of people, I guess.
1: Yeah, Absolutely. I suppose, firstly, the material system that we work in is silicon mm-hmm. and silicon MOS, which is the same technology that we use to build standard computer chips. We have a, a semiconductor, silicon a material, and then an insulating layer and then metal on top to control the silicon channel. So normally, if you operate a, a transistor, you would apply a voltage to, the, to a metal electrode, above the the silicon, and you can use that to control the electrons in the channel of the transistor. And by doing that, you can switch the transistor on and off. What happens if you cool this device down? If you cool it down to only a few degrees above absolute zero, a few Kelvin, then you can get it into a regime where you don't just have a channel of electrons in, in the silicon layer. The channel of electrons can segment into little puddles And these little puddles we call a quantum dot. So this is where it's related to the temperature. So at room temperature, which is around 300 Kelvin, all the electrons, all the particles are jiggling around. They're vibrating around. They have a lot of thermal energy. But when you cool it down, that thermal energy reduces a lot. And the electrons stop moving so much. And then they can sit in these little puddles. They're much more still.
0: Right. And so an electron spin, correct me if I'm wrong, I might be because I'm not an expert in such things, but this is the way that the electron in one of these puddles is pointing?
1: Yes, yeah, so that the spin is sort of like a it's a magnetic property of the electron or any part any what we call a fermion. You can think of it like a magnetic moment of the particle. So if it's it's not exact this is not precisely correct, but if you can think of it like it's a spinning top. It's rotating in a certain direction. And then that gives it a a magnetic moment in, in that direction. That's the spin. And then we can actually, we can polarize that. So it's not naturally polarized. It can point in any direction. But if we put a large magnetic field through this electron or around the electron, then the spin wants to point in a certain direction aligned with that magnetic field. And then we can have two, what we call eigenstates or two basis states for this
0: spin. One aligned with the magnetic field and one uh, anti-parallel. Okay. And these are representing zeros and ones for computing purposes? That's right.
1: Yeah. This becomes the one and the zero of the quantum bit of the quantum processor.
0: And again, a fairly basic question for for our benefit. does the approach you've taken lend itself to scalability, which is obviously related to the goal you're very clear about, reaching over a billion uh, spin qubits? Tell me about that, please.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And like you said, the the goal is to build a system with millions or even billions of qubits on a single chip or in a single system. And that's because to have a useful quantum computer... Experts doing simulations of algorithms are saying that to really have a useful system, you need tens of millions of physical qubits. So it's really important that the technology in itself is scalable, that you can actually integrate tens of millions of qubits in a single system. Now, what we've actually found in in this recent paper is a new way to control the spin qubits that can be done using the wiring that we already integrate into our devices which means that we don't have to integrate larger structures in the device to be able to control the spins. In the field at the moment, there are two primary sort of leading techniques for, for controlling spins. One that we've used a lot in our team so far is where you integrate an antenna, a micro antenna on the device next to the qubits. And you deliver a microwave pulse through that antenna that delivers a, a microwave magnetic field that That controls the spins I say micro antenna I mean it is small but compared to the qubits it's very large on the order of a hundred times or more bigger than the qubits themselves you would need to integrate thousands or tens of thousands of
0: these antennas onto a chip a lot of real estate you're taking up yeah
1: so it becomes a very very tough integration problem the other way to do it is you integrate tiny magnets next to the qubits and what these do is they create a magnetic field gradient around the qubits and that allows you to apply electric fields to the controlling gate electrodes that sort of move the quantum dots back and forth within that magnetic field gradient and then that also allows you to control the spins but it's the same problem i say tiny magnets but these magnets are way bigger than the qubits themselves and it again becomes quite a difficult integration problem
0: Like to know about the, the effect that uh, your colleague, Dr. Tuomo Tunti, I hope I'm saying his name right, stumbled Dr. onto. Yeah. Okay, that's that's right. We'll go with that. Tell me about the effect that he stumbled onto, and what's happened in the two years of trying to understand and control this.
1: Yeah, Tuomo did absolutely stumble upon this, and it was quite a surprise when he brought it to the team. Tuomo was working on a, on another project. He was trying to optimise the operation fidelity of our two qubit logic gates and he was trying a lot of things in this in this campaign a lot of different device designs and control techniques but one day he stumbled across a quite a strange effect he saw that in a particular regime the rotation speed of the spins was increasing quite a lot this was quite strange we'd we'd never really seen this before to do it in this way just controlling the gate voltages on the device it was quite a surprise to see this like we, we typically see a a rotation frequency of of around 1 megahertz, for example. But Twomo showed us in this experiment he was getting 40 megahertz, way faster. And it was controllable. So everybody was very interested. As soon as he brought this to us, we we were all trying to work out what was going on here. What was the effect behind it? And a big question was, can we do it again? Like, Twomo just stumbled upon this just by chance, just by accident. But can we engineer a situation in a different device or a different configuration and find this again. So that started off a whole new campaign separate from Tuomo's set of experiments. So we tried a few different devices, a few different configurations. And actually what we found was we could reproduce this effect quite consistently. In almost every device
0: that we tried, we could make it happen again. And has this led to a patent? Is this something you're looking to protect?
1: Yes, there is a, there is an application on part of it, Yes.
0: Is there anything else you'd like to say about the paper and what you hope it might lead to?
1: Yeah, we're quite excited about the result. And we've noticed quite a a number of people within the field are quite excited about it as well. Sort of the feedback that we've gotten from other experts in the field is that it's something that a lot of people hadn't thought of doing before. So we're quite excited about the extra possibilities that it could open up for the technology as a whole. So what it actually allows us to do is we can control the energy spectrum of quantum dots and that can allow us to change how we control spin qubits and this is something that hadn't really been accepted or tried attempted a lot in the field until now so two of the quite interesting applications of it are: firstly it could enable long-range spin to spin coupling within a device and that's because the existing way of doing two qubit gates For quantum dot qubits is using the exchange interaction which put simply just involves sort of merging slightly two quantum dots and in that whilst they're merged they have an interaction which we call the exchange interaction so that's a very short range thing that qubits have to be right next to each other but when we use this technique of controlling the energy spectrum of the quantum dot and inducing a stronger spin orbit interaction then this actually creates a much longer-range electrical interaction. The electric fields created by the quantum dots in this state actually persists over a much larger distance than would be needed for exchange. So potentially we can do two-qubit operations over at 10 times or more greater distance
0: right. using this. So you'd be in microns instead of tens of nanometers? Yeah,
1: that's right, yeah.
0: Well, without knowing much about the subject, that sounds like it's useful. Next thing I wanted to ask was your coworker, uh, Dr. Andre Sarajeva, wrote a fascinating article for us end of last year about local strength in CMOS-based qubits and the possibility of maybe using this to develop interest from overseas and provide foundry services. And it's an exciting idea, and uh, I'm not sure how practical it is, but it's very interesting. I really, really love the article. So my question is, uh, is there anything you'd like to add perhaps to this proposition, and do you have a point of view on it?
1: There's growing enthusiasm for this in Australia. So traditionally, the semiconductor industry has mostly been dominated by Other countries, so the US, Taiwan, Korea, countries in Europe, there have been some smaller operations in Australia, and there is is some expertise here through organisations such as AMF, the Australian National Fabrication Facility, or companies like Silana. But there is some growing enthusiasm to build some facilities here in Australia, most notably through the AMRF, the Australian Manufacturing uh, Research Facility, which is based at the Western Sydney Aerotropolis. So there's two big projects there. The second of those is actually going to be starting to focus on some semiconductor technologies. Indeed,
0: they're interested in packaging in the second phase of that facility, I understand. Yeah, that's right. I suppose there's, Australia would have a long way to go to
1: catch up to some other countries here, but... That's not to say that efforts aren't useful. There's actually some quite important potential applications here, especially in cases where it's enticing to have uh, some of that manufacturing capability in Australia.
0: And so on the subject of foundries and outsourced production, which is pretty common in the semiconductor industry. I'd like to know about your arrangement. I understand you use an overseas partner for for making your chips. You hand over the designs. They get it done for you. Australia doesn't have a lot of that sort of thing going on here, and thus it would be very difficult to do that here, and I get it. Could you please tell me if you think it's realistic for Australia to want to develop more chip production? And you know, if it was up to you, if you had the potential to tell everyone to do what you want. what would you say you know in terms of policy making or anything else that might be a good way to encourage this
1: i'd say one thing to do is to get started and choose some areas that can be tackled on smaller scales so the the reason i say that is the real top of the industry where you see t1 foundries like at intel or tsmc or samsung these new facilities can cost more than 10 billion dollars for a single fab so it's something that we can look towards eventually, but not something that we can just dive into in, in the near term. If it's if it's an industry that we want to grow over time, it's important that we pick off some smaller pieces of it and start working on it. And, and this um, initiative in semiconductor packaging is a good potential opportunity for that. As for Dirac's timeline and roadmap, for us it is important to have that advanced CMOS manufacturing capabilities. So we're working building partnerships with foundries
0: overseas and uh, working to get that moving on a shorter timescale. I guess this is pretty much the end of the conversation. Before we uh, hang up on each other, I'd love to hear a final word from you, or perhaps if you have something to plug, uh, floor's or yours.
1: Yes, thank you. So we're working towards building a scalable quantum computer here in Australia and this relies on a lot of expertise and a lot of support that we're working to build, particularly in the semiconductor industry, also the expertise in quantum simulation and measurement that we're building at the University of New South Wales and in Sydney, but also in the wider community around quantum algorithms and error correction and the high levels of the stack and, and the way that we can work with partners in building that full technology platform. So we're very excited for the future of what it's going to bring. We're very excited to build a quantum computer over the next few years, next coming decades. It's not a short path. There are many challenges to work out along the way, and it's a lot of scaling to do, but we're very excited for that journey.
0: Well, uh, we look forward to watching your progress and wish you all the best with it. Will, thank you very much for joining us on AU Manufacturing Conversations. It was nice to talk to you.
1: Thank you, Brett. Thanks for